Jonah chapter 1 is our reading this evening and we're going to read the chapter together. So Jonah chapter 1 and verse number 1. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the son of Amittai saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. <coughs> So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper, arise? Call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said every one to his fellow, Come and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What is thine occupation, and whence comest thou? What is thy country? And of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. They said unto him, Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless the men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not. For the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord, and made vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now that's a reading. Despite the caricatures and the cartoons of the story of Jonah that we're all familiar with when the story's been told to children, it's important when you come to this book that we remind ourselves that Jonah was a historical person. That is, a real person, a person of history. He's mentioned in the history books of the Old Testament as such, not only in the prophetic books. For example, he is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25. He's also mentioned in the New Testament and spoken of as a real individual. For example, the Lord Jesus spoke of him when he was speaking about his own death and resurrection in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 41 and verse 42. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, a greater than Jonah is here. And again, in Luke chapter 11, you have a similar quotation of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ 
in Luke chapter 11 and verse 32. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. And so this man's name, which by the way means dove, this man was a real person, and the Bible speaks of him as a real individual. And you come, Jeremy, and just grab a seat, and hopefully keep the midges out. Thank you. Well, Jonah was a real individual, and he is referenced as such in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And the place that Jonah was sent to equally was a real city. Nineveh was a city that, if you're looking at a map, and in modern-day Iraq, you looked at the city of Mosul, then you would see where Nineveh used to be. It's in that area. And back then, the city of Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which was in a perpetual state of war with Israel. And ultimately, it was Assyria that conquered Israel, not at this stage, but ultimately, and took them off into captivity. You remember it was Babylon that uh, took off um, Judah into captivity, but it was Assyria that took the northern kingdom of Israel. And so in this city, Jonah has to go. And it's interesting, there are kind of themes that run through the book. For example, in the ancient Assyrian language, the symbol for Nineveh was the symbol of a house with a fish inside it. And one of the chief gods of the Assyrians was Dagon, which was the great fish god. And these threads run right through the story of Jonah and are connected. Now, the historical context where this is found in the timeline of history is that Jonah was prophesying during the reign of Jeroboam II. And 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23 to verse 28, is the historical record of that reign. He ruled in Israel, the northern kingdom, after the kingdom of Israel was divided into two. And there was the two tribes in the south, the ten tribes in the north. Jeroboam II was a ruler of those ten tribes in the north. 2 Kings 14 verse 24 says that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But despite that, God blessed Israel despite the evil of Jeroboam. In that, Jeroboam expanded the boundaries of Israel and matched the boundaries of Israel during the reign of David and Solomon. And so at this time, in God's providence, the expansion of that nation was made easier because of the Assyrian weakness at that time, just at that time. And it also... There was famines, there was revolts against authority within the Assyrian Empire. There was also an eclipse of the sun at that time that the Assyrian religions placed great emphasis upon and caused great fear, which seems to again reinforce the historical accuracy of this book and give an explanation, at least in part, as to the reaction of the people of Nineveh when this message of judgment came. Because it was a city which was in fear at that time. Now it wasn't until some years later that Tiglath Pilesar, who was uh, later on um, governor and emperor of Assyria, he from 754 to 727 BC gained control, re-established Assyrian dominance and then God used him to come and take these ten tribes into captivity. But at this point in time, Israel is experiencing peace and prosperity. Now, we have a couple at the door. I'm going to wave them in. He's waving back. He doesn't know this is all recorded. 
And you come, Jim and Janet. Nice to see you. <coughs> oh, we left your midges out the back. <coughs> so in Jonah chapter 1, and the peace and prosperity of the nation was unusual. It was almost in the eye of a storm. And Jonah's prophesying at that time. This is not the first time he's going to prophesy. When you read in 2 Kings chapter 14, he was prophesying during this time of peace and prosperity in the nation of Israel. And the nation is enjoying this peace and prosperity because of the providence and the compassion of God. It's not the godliness of the nation. It's not the godliness of its leadership which brings the peace and prosperity. It is God's providence. But Israel's prosperity is not going to last. In fact, Amos, who prophesied at the same time as Jonah, he prophesied in Amos 5 verse 27, Therefore I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. So there will come a time where God's judgment will come upon them because of their wickedness, but just not at the moment. And Hosea, who also is a contemporary of Jonah, Hosea specifically indicated that Israel's captors would be Assyria in Hosea 11, verse 5 to 7. It says they will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king, because they refuse to return to me, and the sword will whirl against their cities and will demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. So there's the background. It's a time of peace, it's a time of prosperity, it's a time of wickedness in the nation, but despite that, it's a time of peace and prosperity. Jonah's active for God, Jonah's speaking for God in those circumstances. And in the midst of that, in that context, we arrive at Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise. Now, God is at the beginning and end of this story. The word of the Lord at the beginning, the word of the Lord right at the end. It's all about God's mercy. It's all about his compassion. It's all about his salvation. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of grace. God is the central character in this book. It's not Jonah. It's not the men of Nineveh. It's God. It's God's actions that drive the whole book from his commissioning of Jonah to the sending of the storm to the sending of the great fish to the sending again of Jonah to to his mercy and his forgiveness that are experienced by Nineveh to his dealings with his servant again at the end of the book. It's all about God's actions, not Jonah's. In this story, we can identify with Jonah and we should Because Jonah's experience is something, I think, which we could all be familiar with. (coughs) Here is someone that God uses despite his imperfections. And he's plenty of them. Here is someone through whom God is glorified, even although he disobeys God. Here is someone whom God saves, even although he's suffering the consequences of his own actions. God still saves him. And here is someone that God still loves and works with at the end of the book, despite his petulance and his rebellion, especially when God saves Nineveh. So let's come to this in verse number two. Work away down. We won't go verse by verse as we would necessarily in a New Testament epistle, but we will go down, if not verse by verse, then section by section. And notice Jonah sent in verse number two, arise, 
Go to Nineveh, that great city. Now, this is the context. It would be the equivalent of someone being asked to go to the capital city of an Islamic state today and preach about their evil and the need for them to repent before the living God. That's the sort of thing he was been asked to do. Assyria is their enemy. Nineveh is their capital. Go to the capital of your enemy where your God is not worshipped and call against it in their sin. Stand in the marketplace, walk through the city and declare God's judgment upon them. Now I said a little about Nineveh. Nineveh is a preeminent city in this empire and is situated, it's actually on the banks of the Tigris, Tigris, Tigris River, Tigris River even, and folks would estimate due to excavations and so on that it was huge that it had a population of almost 600,000, they think. It's a massive city. <coughs> it was known to have massive 100-foot-high walls, 50-foot-thick 50 50 walls. One of the walls stretches 7.5 miles. It's a capital of a nation that is a real and growing threat to the continuing security and prosperity of Israel. Now, Jonah is fresh from accurately prophesying Israel's prosperity and peace. And he's being told to go and to proclaim judgment in the heart of your enemy. That's a big thing to ask, but then God often asks big things of his servants in the Bible. I mean, think about this. Noah, I know it's never rained before, but go and build a boat. Abraham, I know that all your life has been built upon the fact that you believe my promises and these promises are going to be fulfilled in that boy. Take that boy and go on the top of a mountain and kill him. Moses, go back to Egypt, the place where you are wanted for murder, and tell the most powerful man alive on the planet to let my people go. Mary, I know that you're a virgin and you're not married and you're engaged to be married, but you're going to have a baby and that baby will be the son of God. Ananias, I know Saul is the most feared man amongst Christians. He's a murderer, he's a persecutor, he's killing Christians, but go and pray with him. You see, God often asks big things from his servants in the Bible. And here is Jonah, Jonah's been asked to give up a lot. He's a prophet in this golden age. He's one of the most successful prophets, if you like. He's probably enjoying a tremendous amount of approval from Jeroboam and the people themselves. Give it all up. Leave it. Just like Philip when he was preaching in Samaria. Give that up and go into the desert. And so Jonah, in verse number three, makes a decision. He's been asked to do something that's hard by God. And he decides to run. Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He's running from God. He's running from the presence of God. Now, no one really knows. You can read any amount of commentaries. They'll give you different answers where Tarshish is. When I'm telling it to the boys and girls in the school, I'll speak about Spain. But actually, it maybe isn't Spain. It could well be with Tarsus, 
which is in Turkey, or medieval scholars thought it was another name for Carthage in, the, in North Africa, and some people think it's the old ancient city of Tartessos in ancient Spain. We don't really know, but the idea is just this. It wasn't Nineveh. And he was running to this place, which was far away, wherever it was, to get away from the presence of the Lord. He's going in the opposite direction that he should be going. Now, this is his reaction. Go and do this, this very hard thing, Jonah. Nothing said. Off he goes. He <coughs> runs. He just runs. Now, I'm going to stop as I go through this and try and bring some applications of this, practical applications, and you should do the same as we go through these sections. Just take what's been said and, and make the application to your own circumstances because we've all got different circumstances in here and don't just think this is for somebody else, but actually think, well, does this fit into my life circumstances at the moment? Is this something that challenges me? Is this something that I should feel God speaking to me about through this little section? So how many ways, when God asks us to do something that's hard, how many ways do we convince ourselves that it's not okay to follow God's word? How many ways do we convince ourselves? What is God asking you and me to do at this present time? What task is he given us to fulfill? What part of God's word is God speaking to you and to me through? And I'm not speaking about going to some far off place and going to do some dramatic thing that Jonah was asked to do. But in your life and in my life, what is God saying? Because if we're reading God's word, he's saying something to us. That's what God's word is. He's communicating something. What's he saying? Is he saying something about you at school? Is he saying something about you in relationships? Is he saying something about you in the workplace, in college, in your home life, in your local church? What is he saying? How are you being challenged? Are you being challenged with what you do with your time, with your money, with your interests, your character, your behavior, your language? The, the whole kind of spectrum of things that God can speak to us about as we read the Bible. Maybe he ran because it was too hard to do it and he worried that folk would laugh. Maybe he ran because it was too dangerous. Maybe he ran because he didn't want God to do what he knew he would do, which is forgive them. You get that in chapter 4 and verse 2. He says that, I know what sort of God you are. I knew what would happen. And he had such antipathy towards the people of Nineveh, he didn't want to take the message, really not out of personal safety issues, but he didn't want the outcome he knew that would come if they repented of their sin. So he didn't want to happen what God wanted to happen in that set of circumstances. Now just challenge yourself in that. And you know if you put this into practice, whatever it may be, you know what's going to happen. You know the change that will be made. You know the alteration. And you don't want God to do it. So you run. I run. Ask yourself the question, where is your Nineveh? Now Nineveh is not just a worst place that you can think about. It's not just God sending us to a place. But rather this, it's what God has asked us to do. In our circumstances. So who do we not want to witness to? Who do we not want to... Um, be in relationship with who do we not want whatever it is 
That's our Nineveh. And Jonah runs. And it says in verse number 3, he rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. Now I'm interested in this. God let him run. God let him run. Jonah boards the ship at Joppa, modern day Jaffa, on Israel's coast. It's about 35 miles from Samaria, but the same distance from Jerusalem. And God does not intervene. God doesn't bring circumstances to bear at all in this scenario. He runs. And it's as if God lets the leash go and just lets him run. And Jonah's disobedience does not appear to have any consequences in the short term. He runs. God lets him go. Right down to Joppa without incident. We were talking about this the other day there, but there even seems to be providential provision when he gets there to continue his journey. (coughs) What happens is just this, when he gets on that boat, and when that boat sets sail, he now has lost control of his ability to repent. He's not in charge of the boat. He can't turn it around and go back. He has stepped off the shore onto a boat and by so doing has now involved others in his disobedience and if that boat's going to get turned around and he's going to be obedient, he'll need the agreement of other people now. So this is not just about him anymore. And God has allowed him to run. Listen, when we walk or run or flee from God and do so to pursue sin, there rarely are any impediments on that pathway. Rarely. A thought turns into a search, which turns into a click and a link, when no one notices and no one is hurt, the so-called, and you know what? There are no consequences to it. None. You see, it's just so easy. No one knows that you've been convicted about something when you've been reading the Bible. And so no one knows if you don't do it, if you're not obedient. No one knows about that challenge in terms of character or conduct or relationship or whatever. So you just just keep going, you see, in, in disobedience. You might skip out of work responsibilities. There's no repercussions. You might spend more than you should and get yourself into all sorts of debt and problem. And you know what? It's easy. You can just keep... You can just keep spending your way into problems. No problem. It's easy. But the reality is just this, that there are consequences which come because it's not possible to run away from the presence of God. And you know what we do when we run? We just take our problems with us. We're We're not getting away from God. We're just changing the dynamic in which we need to deal with the same issue. That's all we're doing. Whether shall I go from thy spirit, the psalmist said in Psalm 139, or whether shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. 
Now, that's true in a physical sense, but it's also true metaphorically. Because sometimes we think that we can hide under a stone, whatever that stone may be, and escape God's gaze and God's presence. We think it's like children, you know, playing hide and seek and they put the light off and you can't see anyone. But actually, whether it's light or dark doesn't change at all God's vision and perception of us. Not at all. So when it's pitch dark, it's as well as being bright sunshine as far as God's concerned. It's like Adam and Eve running in the Garden of Eden and hiding behind a tree. As if God somehow wouldn't see them. <coughs> but let's not be too hard on that because that's what we do. Because in our disobedience we don't act even rationally. And sometimes God, as he will here, has to teach us and chooses to teach us by allowing us to face the consequences of our disobedience. And sometimes he lets Rather than him be our direct teacher or other Christians be our direct teacher, sometimes he lets consequence be the teacher. So although God was willing to let him run, he was not willing to let him go. Again, it's the idea, I think, if you've got, I mean, I, some of you have got dogs and so on, and you see folks with that lead and they don't, you know, folks think that you love their dog and it's slabbering all over you and you don't love their dog. You've got to smile benignly. And you're sort of walking along and the fact of the matter is the dog can run quite far away from its owner before the lead is employed. But the lead is always there. The owner's actually in control. But the dog thinks that he's running free. But he's not free. Because at a time of the owner's choosing, then he can be brought back. And God lets us run, but he doesn't let go. And Jonah's about to experience God's grace. The same grace, by the way, that he did not want the folk of Nineveh to experience. Is it possible to run from God? Let's just ask the question, are we running from God right now? Right now. You challenge yourself as I just challenge myself in this moment, are you running from God? And God's spoken to you. And you haven't engaged with him, you've just run. And it seems to have been the answer because you know what? He hasn't bothered you since. Listen, you're not running away. There's just distance, but he's always under control. And there'll come that point where the leash goes taut. And then he has dealings with us. How far do we run away from God? And in your life circumstances, whatever that may be, challenge yourself. Am I like Jonah? Don't just come to Oak and Foil uh, and for you know the fellowship and, and all the things that we love about being together and we love the singing and we love you know the conversation. We don't love the midges, but we love apart from that, we love everything about being together. But let us hear God's voice. Let us hear the challenge of it, the weight of it. Allow God to speak to you in these meetings. And if your face is away from God and your back is toward him and you've been putting distance between you and God, just stop and let him speak to you. Jonah ran. God let him run. But God did not let him go. Because in verse 4 it says this, the Lord sent a great wind into the sea. 
So here's a man who is running from God, who controls the wind, who controls the sea, who sees things globally and beyond. This is the greatness of God. And that little expression, but the Lord, is a beautiful phrase that you can trace. It's a great Bible study, actually. And it's a beautiful expression which often precedes God's actions of mercy and of justice and of grace and of redemption. But listen, if God wanted to, he could have let Jonah run and run and run as long as he wanted to. He could have let the missing to Nineveh fail. He could have let Jonah live out his days always running from God. Now, is that what you and I want to do? Really? Is it the case that you want to live your life in perpetual disobedience? Going the easy route of away from God with the bumps on the road that may well be God speaking to you, but yet running, running away from reality, running away from the reality of your relationship with him, from his demands upon your life, from his demands upon you and your character. Because you cannot change that reality. You can't run away from reality, nor can you conquer it by running away. It's always there. God's pursuit of his people is relentless. And I read this. This is worth thinking about. His will cannot be overcome by mine. I don't have a stronger will than God. And sometimes I think I do. I am not more determined than God. I'm not cleverer than God. I don't have a greater sense of the world than God. God is is greater in all these things. He is big and we are small. And when we run, we cannot actually change the reality of our relationship with him by running. So he sends a wind. He sends a mighty tempest. Now, as this narrative flows, these seamen... These mariners had likely experienced many storms, but this one was different because this had been hurled upon them by God himself. And I don't think they'd ever experienced a storm that was the consequence of a sinner's rebellion and running. This would be a new thing. Now this text is clear. The storm was hurled from God at the ship. It was sudden, it was intense, and the ship threatened to break up. Break up. And so in verse number 5, the narrative runs on. The mariners were afraid. They cried every man unto his God, and they started throwing stuff overboard to lighten it. And Jonah gets down into the sides of the ship and just goes to sleep. Unbelievable. You see, there's the sleep of a man with a clear conscience. The mariners were afraid. I found this interesting because, you know, something that Jonah did not consider, and actually he never mentioned it right through the story. His sin impacted other people. These mariners going about their business didn't know they were taking on board someone who was running from the God of heaven, and God was going to hurl a storm at this man and their ship. And so his disobedience, unaddressed, brought great distress to people near to him. 
That's why, by the way, James talks about the shipwreck of your faith. Because there's other people on board. You see, when you get into bother, when you begin to go off course, when you begin to get into this condition, then the people in your direct context are impacted by that. The people around about you, who are on the same journey, they're affected. You've created a new community. And that new community is people who are impacted by your sin. That's a community. You're in relationship with them and you're running from God and you're sinning as Jonah was singing. Therefore, God's actions upon you impact other people. What a challenge. How has my disobedience led to distress for other people? Has there been someone affected by my disobedience? Well, the answer to that is absolutely. When you think about, for example... Let me try and just give some examples of it. If you think about you're reading the Bible and God speaks to you about certain aspects of your character. So, for example, just to pluck one out there, say, say for example, you're a jealous person or a person who is very envious. And you're reading your Bible and God speaks to you about that. And you're challenged. You hear the voice of God through his word. And you're not being sent in some mission like Jonah was. But actually, this is pretty hard stuff because God's asking you to look within your character and change who you are essentially. So you decide, no, you'll not bother. You'll run from that challenge. And you run and you run and you run and the jealousy and the envy is still impacting people around about you, and God intervenes. And there's a crisis in your life, but that crisis doesn't just affect you. It affects the people in the immediate circumstance of your life. These mariners, and you know what the thing is, it's so sad when you read about Jonah, Jonah doesn't appear to care about these mariners. In his prayer, he never mentions them. They seem almost inconsequential to him in the big scheme of things. He never speaks about their salvation. He never speaks about their worship, their conversion. He never mentions it. And the response of these mariners is also interesting. Here are ungodly people and they're worshipping false gods. Mind you, they seem better people than Jonah, but they, they work hard, they're industrious. And they're not perfect, they're certainly not innocent people, they are sinners, and they're suffering at the moment because of Jonah's sin. So what do they do? What does the ungodly do in a situation like that? Well, number one, they cry out to empty gods, or, or their God, and they, they, they just cry out to, to any gods that they can think about. <coughs> I was thinking about this, you know, sometimes we just behave exactly the same way. And it's either you or it's someone close to you and God's dealing with you or they're dealing with someone close to you and it's not easy. So you don't switch teams and you start praying to other gods. But you can self-medicate to make things better. It can be all sorts of things. Watch more TV, get lost, get lost in that world so you don't have to think about the real one. Satisfy yourself physically in whatever way you can. 
get yourself busier. Lighten the load. That's what they did. They lightened the load. They literally lightened the load. They cleared the decks. They emptied their life of stuff that they thought was going to cause them problems. So what they did was this. They, they chucked all the stuff overboard. And they, they looked at their circumstances. And they're not yet looking at God. And they're saying, we can alter this. We, we, can, we can survive this. Let's lighten the load. Again, think about it. God's dealing with you. God's dealing with your husband or your wife or your children or your friends or your colleagues. Somebody close. God's dealing with you. How do you respond to that? Do do you lighten the load? Do you say, well, you know, I need to make some life adjustments. I need to get more sleep. I need to work less, work more, uh, whatever it may be. I need to cut down my spending. Uh, And we, we address all the symptoms of God's actions in our life, but we still don't go to God. In fact, perhaps like Jonah, all we do is bury our head in the sand or go to sleep. So in the middle of a storm, what does he do? He just gets himself down and he goes to sleep. Not like the Lord Jesus who was fast asleep in the storm in total control of everything. Jonah's in control of nothing. He's in denial. Lord Jesus was sinless. Jonah's far from sinless. He's guilty. He's in the face of this issue of God's dealings in his life. And he just goes to sleep. And hopes something will happen. Well, of course, something does happen. The sailors discover him. Can't believe it. So the story unfolds. They cast lots and so on. And the lot falls on Jonah. And evidently God's involved in that. And then Jonah begins to speak. It's the most unusual things he begins to say. So the words that come out of his mouth are totally unrelated to the decision making in his life. The words that come out of his mouth are unrelated to the character he's been displaying. So he says to them, I'm a Hebrew. Yes, he was. Absolutely correct. He says there is one God in heaven who's made the sea and the land and created everything. Yeah, absolutely right. Your theology is spot on. You're still a disobedient sinner. He says, I fear the Lord. Not so much. Not so much. I was called. I ran the other way. I'm trying to flee the presence of the Lord. Verse 10. He obviously had a big conversation with the sailors because it says this, the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he told them. So he gives his testimony. And the response of that, he basically gets to the point of being suicidal. He says, look, Take me up, throw me into the sea. That'll sort it. No repentance. No turning to God. No speaking to God. Just look, I've got to a stage where I'm done. I just wanted to finish. Throw me into the sea. And he seeks death. For he says, I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. And you almost feel like saying to Jonah, get a grip. Self-pity in its extreme. Jonah's in a bad place. He thinks the whole thing's such a mess, he'd be better just off dead. He's not, he doesn't think God can use him anymore. Just throw me out of the boat, leave me to die. He's in a place of absolute distress and despair. And instead of turning to God in it, he just wants it to stop. 
the sailors all credit to them and said, no, 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 no. That's unacceptable. So what do they do? The only thing they can do, they try harder. They just try harder. They don't give up. They're maybe just not actively ready to send a man to his death. They do what the only thing they can think about doing when a storm hits, which is try harder. Do more. Do it better. Sounds great, actually. Bigger effort from the community round about you. Feels good. Feels you're doing something. It doesn't address the issue. So the community and the effort and the goodwill and no amount of digging in deep and rowing hard can overcome a hard and unrepentant heart. Can't. Because no one else could repent of Jonah's sin. Jonah and Jonah was not repenting Jonah didn't say turn the boat around and go back so I can repent and faithfully fulfil the mission God has called me and I have no doubt God would have calmed the storm and given them a healthy tailwind and they went back to shore in jig time that was not the outcome no in fact what happened was this that these sailors renounced their many gods and they began to pray to the God of heaven. And when they had been saved and when they were worshipping after they'd been saved and sacrificing to God, you can see that God is moving even in the rebellious circumstances of this man, Jonah. Because God is gracious and God is merciful and God is sovereign and God saves, and God rescues, and even does it in the extremity of a set of circumstances. One writer put it this way, God is able to even use your sin, and disobedience, and distress caused to other people, to bring glory to himself and salvation to sinners. Jonah was fleeing God's call for him to preach the gospel to pagans. What happens? He ends up in a ship full of pagans who get saved. That does not mean that he did the right thing, but it does mean that God does what God does in his own way, in his own time. We're not smarter than him. God is a God who acts sovereignly and in accordance with his character. The sailors didn't praise Jonah, they praised the Lord. And they rightly direct their worship and praise to him. And we'll pick this up in our next session. What's the challenge of this? I think that's a big challenge. Because I think some of us are running. And if you're like me, maybe you know exactly what you're running from. And it's not so much the dramatic go here or do this thing that Jonah was told to do. That might be actually a bit easier. You know, go to some place and deliver some literature. Go to some place and say a word of witness or whatever. But when God says, take a moment. You're someone that tells lies. And you're convicted about it. And you've got the sword of the Spirit in your hand, the word of God. God takes it and he cuts your own flesh. It's the hardest cut of all. 
and you run. Because it's easier to run than it is to face up to character and to the change that you've got. You've got a relationship that's dysfunctional. God convicts you about it. What do you do? It's easy just to run. Just run. You've got a circumstance at work, whatever it may be, and God has spoken to you about it in some sort of way. What do you do? You don't face the circumstance, you just try and change your job. You run. You see, changing the dynamic and the circumstance without addressing the issue just shifts the problem somewhere else. You're going to have to deal with it. So what is it? Challenge yourself. What is it that you're running from? Tonight? Some of you might be running from things that you need to do. Some of you might not yet be baptised. And you have felt convicted about it. But you could give five or six reasons why you're not going to do that. And like Jonah, perhaps there are reasons that are big in your mind to do with friends and to do with choices and to do with uh, fear and all sorts of things. But the reality is just this. God's asked you to do a hard thing. And you feel it's hard. So you're running. You're just running. Maybe for some of us, it's something else, whatever it may be. You'll know what it is in your own life. Because the reality is this, most of us are more like Jonah than we would like to think. Most of us. And God, if we're reading his word at all, do you really think that you can read God's living word every day and he doesn't say anything to you? Do you really think that God isn't going to speak when we read his word? Or he'll speak question is will we listen and if we listen will we run trust that God will challenge our hearts on this and we'll see Jonah's story unfold through this weekend and learn from it I trust let's just pray and ask for his blessing